Section two of Pierre and Luce by Romain Roland. Translated by Charles Decay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Nevertheless, nothing had changed. There he was in his own room, littered with papers and books. All about, the familiar sounds. In the street, the trumpet sounding the close of the warning against air bombs. On the house stairs, the reassured gossip of the tenants coming up from the cellar. In the story overhead, the crazy marching to and fro of the old neighbor, who for months had been waiting for his vanished son. But here in his own chamber lay no longer those cares of his in ambush which he had left there. Sometimes it happens that an incomplete accord in music sounds raucous in a way. It leaves the mind disquieted up to the moment when some note is added, which procures a fusion of the hostile or coldly alien elements, like visitors who do not know one another and wait to be introduced. At once the ice is broken and harmony spreads from one member of the group to another. This moral chemistry has just been put in operation by a warm and furtive contact of hands. Pierre was not conscious of the reason for the change. He never dreamed of analyzing. But he felt that the habitual hostility of things in general had suddenly softened. A shooting pain takes possession of your head for hours. Of a sudden you perceive it is no longer there. How was it that it went? scarcely a feeling of buzzing about the temples to recall it. Pierre was a bit suspicious of this new-found calm. He suspected that it concealed under a passing truce a much worse return of the pain which was merely taking breath. Already he was acquainted with the respites that are obtained through the arts. When into our eyes penetrate the divine proportions of lines and colors, or into the voluptuous windings of the sonorous ear-shell, the lovely, varied play of accords which combine and interlock in obedience to the laws of harmonious numbers, peace takes possession of us, and joy inundates our souls. But that is a radiance which comes from outside, one would say from a sun, the distant fires of which hold us in suspense fascinated, lifted high above our life. It endures only a moment, and then one falls again. Art is never more than a passing forgetfulness of the actual, the real. Pierre was afraid and fully expected the same deception. But this time the radiation came from within. Nothing that belongs to life was forgot, but everything fell into harmony. His recollections, his new thoughts, even to the familiar objects about him, the books and papers in his chamber sprang alive and took on an interest which they had lost. For months past his intellectual growth had been compressed, like a young tree which is struck in full blossoming, by the saints of the ice. He did not belong to those practical boys who profit by the indulgence offered at universities to the younger classes just about to be called to the colors in order to pull out hastily a diploma from under the indulgent eyes of the examiners. 
nor was he one to feel the despairing eagerness of the young man who sees death approaching and so takes double mouthfuls and devours the arts and sciences which he will never have a chance to test and verify in life that perpetual feeling of emptiness at the end emptiness that is underneath and everywhere hidden beneath the cruel and absurd illusion of the world this it was that swept aside all his enthusiasms he would throw himself on a book on a thought then he stopped discouraged whither would that lead what the use of learning what is the point of getting riches if it be necessary to lose everything leave everything if nothing really belongs to you in order that activity in order that science should have any sense it is necessary that life should have some this sense no effort of the mind no supplication from the heart had been able to produce for him and yet lo and behold all of itself this sense had come life had some sense what then and seeking to find whence came this inner smile he beheld the parted lips upon which his mouth was burning to press itself in ordinary times no doubt this wordless fascination would not have persisted at that period of upgrowth when one is a lover of love one sees love in every eye the greedy and uncertain heart gathers it flitting from one to the other and nothing forces it to settle down the heart is just beginning its day but the day at the present period will be a short one it is necessary to hurry up the heart of this young fellow was in a hurry all the greater because it was so much behindhand great cities which from a distance appear like the smoking solfataras of sensuality really harbor fresh souls and ingenuous bodies how many young men and young girls there are who respect love and keep their senses virgin up to the marriage day even in the refined circles where mental curiosity is precociously excited what singular ignorances conceal themselves under the free talk of some young worldly girl or of some student who knows everything and understands nothing in the heart of Paris there are provinces most naive, little gardens as of cloisters, pure existences as of springs. Paris permits herself to be betrayed by her literature. Those who speak in her name are the most soiled of all. And besides, one only knows too well what a false human consideration often prevents the pure from avowing their innocence. Pierre did not yet understand love, and he was delivered up to the first appeal love made. This also added to the enchantment of his thought, that love had been born under the wing of death. In that moment of emotion when they felt the menace of the bombs pass over their heads, when the blood-stained apparition of the wounded man contracted their hearts, then it was their fingers groped toward each other and both of them had read therein, at the same time, with the quivering of the flesh that was frightened, the loving consolation of an unknown friend. Fleeting pressure. One of the two hands, that of the man, says, Lean upon me, and the other, 
the maternal one, pushes aside her own fear in order to say, "'My little dear!' Nothing of all this was uttered or heard, but that inward murmur filled the soul far better than words, that curtain of foliage which masks our thought. Pierre allowed himself to be cradled by this humming. Such the song of a golden wasp that floats through the chiaroscuro of one's thought. His days became numb things in this new languor. That solitary and naked heart dreamed of the warmth of a nest. During these first weeks of February, Paris was counting her ruins from the last raid and licking her wounds. The press, locked up in its kennel, was barking for reprisals. And according to the statement of the man who put the fetters on, the government was making war on the French. The open season for suits at law for treasonable acts commenced. The spectacle of a wretched creature who was defending his own head, bitterly demanded by the public accuser, was a matter of amusement for Tupari, whose appetite for the theater had not yet been satisfied by four years of war and ten millions of dead men dissolving behind the flies. But the youth remained completely and solely absorbed in the mysterious guest who had just come to make him a visit. Strange intensity of these visions of love printed on the very floor of his thought, and nevertheless lacking in contour. Pierre would have been incapable of saying what was the form of her features, or what the color of her eyes, or the modeling of her lips. All he could bring back was the emotion already in himself. All his attempts to give precision to the image merely ended in deforming it. He was no more successful when he went to work to find her in the streets of Paris. At every turn he believed he had seen her. It was either a smile or a white young neck or a gleam in some eyes. And then the blood shook in his heart. There was no resemblance, none whatever, between these flying images and the real image which he sought and which he believed he loved. Well, then, did he not love her? Surely he loved her, and that is why he saw her everywhere and under every shape. For she just is every smile, each radiance, all life. And the exact form would be a limitation. But one longs for that limitation in order to clasp love and to possess it. Though he might never see her again, he knew that she existed. She existed, and that she was the nest. In the hurricane, a port. A lighthouse in the night. Stella Maris, amor. Oh, love, watch over us at the hour of death. Along the quay of the Seine, beside the Institute, he wandered, looking with little attention at the shelves of the few bouquinistes who had stuck to their posts. He found himself at the foot of the steps of the Pont des Arts. Raising his eyes, he perceived her for whom he had waited. A portfolio of drawings under her arm, she came down the steps like a little doe. He did not reflect for the shadow of a second. He rushed forward to meet her, and while he ascended toward her who was coming down, 
for the first time their gaze rested the one on the other and entered. Arrived in front of her and stopping short, he began to blush. Surprised, seeing that he blushed, she reddened too. Before he could get his breath again, the little deer-like step had already gone beyond him. When strength returned and he was able to turn about, her skirt was disappearing at the turning of the arcade which looks upon the Rue de Seine. He did not try to follow her. Leaning against the balustrade of the bridge, he saw her own look in the stream that flowed below. For some time his heart had a pasture new. Oh, dear stupid children! A week later he was loafing in the Luxembourg gardens, which the sun was filling with a golden softness. Such a radiant February in that funereal year! Dreaming with his eyes open, and hardly knowing well whether he was dreaming what he saw, or saw what he was dreaming, steeped in a greedy languor obscurely happy, unhappy, in love, as much filled full of tenderness as with the sun, he smiled as he strolled with inattentive eyes, and without his knowing it his lips moved, reciting words without connection, a song of some kind. He looked down at the sandy path, and like the wing-tip of a dove that passes, he had an impression that a smile had just passed along. He whirled about and saw that he had just crossed her path. And just at that moment, without stopping in her walk, she turned her head with a smile in order to observe him. Then he hesitated no longer and went toward her, his hands almost extended in so juvenile and naive a rush that naively she waited for him. He made no excuses for himself. There was no awkwardness between them. It seemed to them they were continuing an interview already begun. "'You are laughing at me,' said he. "'You are quite right.' "'I'm not laughing at you.' Her voice, like her step, was lively and supple. "'You were laughing all to yourself. I merely laughed at seeing you.' "'Was I laughing, really?' "'You are still laughing now.' "'Now I know why.' She did not ask him what he meant. They walked side by side. They were happy. "'What a jolly little sun!' said she. "'Newly born springtide!' "'Was it to him just now you were sending that little smile?' "'Not to him alone. Perhaps to you, too.' "'Little liar! Bad boy! You don't even know me!' as if one could say such a thing. We have seen each other, I don't know how often. Thrice, counting this time. Ah, you remember then. You see that we are old acquaintances. Let's talk about it. I'm agreed. That's all I want. Oh, come, let us sit there. Just an instant, won't you please? It's so nice at the edge of the water. They were near the Galatea fountain, which the masons had covered over with tarpaulins to protect it from the bombs. 
"'I really cannot. I shall miss my train.' She gave him the hour. He showed her that she had more than twenty-five minutes. Yes, but she wanted first to buy her lunch at the corner of Rue Racine, where they kept good little buns. He hauled one out of his pocket. No better than this one. Don't you really want to take it? She laughed and hesitated. He put it in her hand and kept hold of her hand. You would give me such pleasure. Come now, come and sit down. He led her to a bench in the middle of the walk that runs about the basin. I've something else. He brought out of his pocket a chocolate tablet. Gourmand! And what besides? Only, I'm ashamed. It's not in its wrapper. Give it me, give it. It's just the war. He looked on as she nibbled. "'It's the first time,' said he, "'that I've thought the war had any good in it. "'Oh, let's not talk of it. "'It's so completely overwhelming.' "'Yes,' he said, enthusiastic. "'We shall never speak of it.' All of a sudden the atmosphere began to grow lighter. "'Look at those Pierrots who are taking their tub.' She pointed to the sparrows that were attending to their toilets on the edge of the basin. "'But then, the other night,' he followed her thought, "'the other night in the subway. Tell me now, did you see me then?' "'Sure.' "'But you never looked my way. All the time you stayed turned in the other direction. See now, just as at present.' He gazed at her profile as she nibbled at her bun, looking straight ahead of her with roguish eyes. "'Do look at me a moment. What are you gazing at off there?' She did not turn her head. He took her right hand, the glove of which was torn at the index and showed the end of the finger. "'What are you looking at?' "'And you examining my glove!' Will you be so kind as not to tear it more? In a distracted fashion, he was engaged in making the hole larger. Oh, forgive me. But how were you able to see? She did not answer, but in that mocking profile he could see the corner of her eye, and that was laughing. Oh, you sly boots. It's very simple. Everybody can do that. I never could. Just try. You simply squint. I never could. Never. In order to see, it's necessary for me to look right to the front, stupidly. Oh, no, not so stupidly. At last, I see your eyes. They looked at each other, gently laughing. What's your name? Luce. That's a lovely name, lovely as this day. And yours? Pierre, rather worn out. A fine name that has honest and clear eyes. Like mine. Well, yes, so far as clear goes, they are. That's because they're looking at Luce. Luce? 
people say mademoiselle. No. No? He shook his head. You are not mademoiselle. You are just Luce, and I am Pierre. They were holding hands, and without looking at one another, their eyes fixed upon the tender blue of the sky between the branches of the leafless trees, they kept silence. The flood of their thoughts intermingled by way of their hands. She said, The other night both of us were afraid. Yes, said he, how good it was. Only later they smiled at having expressed, each one, what the other was dreaming of. She tore her hand away and suddenly sprang up, having heard the clock strike. Oh, I have scarcely more than time left. Together they marched at that little quick step the Parisian women take so prettily, so that, seeing them trot, one scarcely thinks of their swiftness, so easy appears the gait. Do you pass here often? Every day, but oftener on the other side of the terrace. She pointed to the garden with its Watteau trees. I am just back from the museum. He looked at the portfolio she carried. Painter? he asked. No, she replied. That's too big a word. A little dauberette. Why? For your own pleasure? Oh, no, indeed. For money. For money? It's horrid, isn't it, to make art for money? It's particularly astonishing to make money if one cannot paint. It's just for that reason, you see. I'll explain it to you another time. Another time, by the fountain, we'll have lunch again. We shall see, if it's good weather. But you will come earlier, will you not? Say yes, Luce. They were come to the station. She jumped on the running board of the tram car. Answer! Say yes, little light! She did not answer, but when the tram was in motion, she made a yes with her eyelids, and he read on her lips without her having spoken. Yes, Pierre. Both of them thought, as they went their way, It's amazing this evening what a happy look everybody has. And they kept smiling without taking heed of what had occurred. They knew only that they had it, that they possessed it, and that it belonged to them. It? What? Nothing. We feel rich this evening. On getting home they looked at themselves carefully in the mirror, just as one looks at a friend with loving eyes. They said to themselves, That gaze of his, of hers, was fixed on you. They went to bed early, overcome. But wherefore? By a delicious weariness. While they undressed, they kept thinking, What's best of all at present is that there's a tomorrow. End of section two. Recording by Roger Moline.